Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, welcome back to the Out of Spec Podcast. We have another guest on this week. This is Kyle, another Kyle, Kyle Field, who is an editor at uh, Clean Technica. Is that correct? Um, yeah, me. we wanted to talk to you about some of the stuff, uh, what you do in the industry, and I uh, actually want to know how you two Kyles met and how you keep each other straight when you go to events and things like that. Because, um, yeah, you're the only other Kyle I've met in this industry so far. So now it just got that much more confusing. But Kyle, uh, tell us about some of your background. Yeah, I'm uh, glad to help and add some confusion to the EV space with uh, multiple <laughs> Kyles. Uh, but for me, yeah, I mean, uh, in terms of clean tech and kind of the EV space, which is what we primarily cover within the automotive world, the, the overlap with out of spec. Um, I, I was passionate about kind of clean tech and really with solar was my, my original passion in the space. Because uh, it just seemed like magic that you can put these panels on your roof, these pieces of glass, basically, uh, on your roof, and it produces electricity kind of for decades. Uh, that just seemed too good to be true. And so I was really excited to to try that out when we got our first home in 2011. Uh, I've been working in manufacturing for about 15, maybe 10 years at that point, but 15 or 20 years uh, in total. And um, we got our house. I started digging into that and Clean Technica came up as kind of a core resource in kind of my search to make our home and lifestyle more sustainable. And so I started as a reader uh, at Clean Technica. Um, we added solar to our house and it worked as promised. We added five panels at the time just to kind of try it out. And um, from kind of Clean Technica as the base, I, I broadened out and moved, like got excited about electric cars and broader sustainability. And I think it's just a really exciting space, um, not just because it's clean and good for the planet and all of that. I think that's that's important and we need to do that as kind of a mandate, but whoever got excited about paying taxes, which we have to do as well. So it was really the, the financial sustainability, the fact that you can put panels on your roof and they actually pay out over a reasonable amount of time. When I put those on in 2011, I think the payout on that system was like 18 and a half years, which is not exciting. <laughs> but now it's down to sub 10 years. And uh, so I think it's, it's a, there's a strong case to be made for the financial uh, investment in solar. The same applies for electric cars. And I think soon that'll be something we can say about energy storage as well, which I think is uh, boring on the surface, but there's <laughs> a lot of opportunity and, and there's a lot of need to do it. And, and that will drive the financials uh, eventually. So. What I find most interesting is, Kyle, you and I have spent countless days together talking about, you know, four ecosystems of how energy is produced until ultimately moving a vehicle. And I think what I've learned from you mostly is that though even recently, like with, with everything going on in Russia, it's insane. And Ukraine, we have the tool to have full energy independence on a personal level, right? So you can have your own energy generation at home. You still need to pay a grid connection fee in most states legally, but you can power your house, your car, everything. 
from your own generated electricity. And to me, that's the most enticing bit of this out of anything. You know, it's a benefit. It's green. I don't need to burn anything. Great. But that I control my own energy. I have a fixed cost after the initial investment of hardware. That's the most appealing. But I think what what I what you've opened my eyes to over the years is the entire ecosystem of how are we producing our energy? How does it get our car? And what does that actually mean? So I guess my main question for you, I know I might be cutting in and out just a little bit with Wi-Fi. My main question is, are there enough solar panels for what we need? What are the resource elements of this? Right. Yeah. I haven't dug into it on the resource side. I think I kind of get lost when we start talking about policy or the commodities that feed into these technologies, whether it's the lithium in batteries, the nickel in batteries, like we're talking about so recently with Russia uh, or in, in uh, solar panels, it's, it's silica and um, aluminum, I think are the two key. And then there's some other components that go into supporting that on the electronic side. Um, so I'm not sure what the constraints are in terms of commodities, but in terms of production capacity for solar panels, I mean, we've not hit that as a constraint. Um, we had some early ebbs and flows when, um, I think Germany and Spain were two of the earliest countries to really not force it, but really push it from a policy side. And that drove a lot of volume that really helped the world uh, get up to speed, get up to capacity in terms of production. And since those initial ebbs and flows coming out of that, um, prices have come down significantly, volumes have gone up significantly. And I don't think production is a constraint on the, the solar panel side. Um, and that's that's extremely exciting because like you said, I mean, people view solar panels and electric cars and even energy storage, which is again, pretty boring to talk about uh, for most people um, as, as like tree hugger technologies. That's where people in California, uh, that's what people in California do. That's what, uh, you know, all the yuppies do. And it's, it's, it's not that it's really so much more, like you said, it's, it's energy independence. Um, and that hasn't resonated in the United States as much, but I think with, with this whole Russia, um, we call it a situation, but that sounds too tame, but what Russia is doing in Europe and, and the atrocities they're committing in Ukraine, I mean, it, it really calls attention to just how big of an opportunity this is with uh, the supply of gas, with the supply of oil, um, and our ability to, to really solve that um, on an individual basis, on a countrywide basis, on a regional basis, and really move beyond these, these old tensions that have existed. So what do you see as the largest opportunity to not only have energy independence, but to also clean up our sort of emissions from generating energy? Sure. I mean, it varies by region. It varies by by state, um, even by county, if you really drill into it. Uh, but I think if we look at like Western or sorry, Eastern Europe, uh, they burn a ton of coal to produce their power. They're heavily constrained or heavily dependent on Russia. For, for gas, for a lot of their broader energy needs. And so I think installing solar, um, much like we see in, in Germany and how they've evolved since their big push in, in the mid early 2000s, um, solar is a huge opportunity and wind really goes in tandem with that. So uh, I would focus on those two in terms of the energy mix. And um, in those countries, it's just a significant opportunity because it cuts out the coal, it reduces the the dependence on uh, Russia for, for gas or what people call natural gas. Uh, we just call it gas because natural makes it sound a little too tame. You're still burning stuff, creating emissions, and it's uh, it's not great. So I would say solar uh, paired with wind, uh, they tend to work in tandem. So solar produces power during the day when the sun is out. And then when the sun goes down, typically the wind picks up. And it, it, it it's a strange natural synergy that you get from those two, two sources. And Obviously, solar needs to or storage needs to come into the mix to kind of bridge the gap and make them uh, play in harmony. But yeah, those two those two are fantastic, and I would say that's the biggest opportunity. Um, did you see this new Tesla mega charger in Alaska thing? I did. Yeah, it's, that is crazy. mega pack. I should say that was so cool. Is it like ninety three megawatt hours up there? It's and I think huge. That's that's massive. That's the size of the one that we were talking about in Australia, the Hornsdale uh, installation down there was 100, kilo, 100 megawatt hours. But um, at the same time, I mean, that's that's the extreme use case, right? You're in what is it, negative 30 degrees and it just gets so cold. I mean, that that's going to be fantastic for really 
um, proving to the world that either the batteries are ready or they're not. I mean, it could be a catastrophic failure, but I mean, it's a massive investment. I'm sure they can do it. Uh, so yeah, that'll be, that'll be interesting to see how it plays out. So on a personal level, what, what is your house energy consumption? Cause obviously this all ties into electric cars, which is about our podcast and mobility. But I think how is your car charged? I guess is what I'm most curious about. Oh, we just plug it in. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah. you must have some sort of upstream. <laughs> green... <laughs> yeah. 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 So we have, we have solar on our roof. Um, we actually, uh, our house burned down in a fire in 2017. Uh, so it was a Thomas fire. Um, it was a surprise. I mean, obviously we weren't expecting it. Um, it kind of came out of nowhere. We had some crazy winds. So our house burned down, um, which meant that we had to rebuild. So when we rebuilt, um, I kind of said, you know, let's, let's wipe the slate clean and say like, what would be ideal for our situation? Would it be full solar? We had some solar panels on our house before we had about 17 panels before. Um, so when we rebuilt, I ran the numbers on three different traditional solar installations. So putting a roof on bolting on panels. Um, and then the, the fourth option we, we looked at was the Tesla solar roof. Um, that one ended up being about maybe three or $4,000 more than uh, getting a metal roof, which is already a very expensive roof, but we wanted something that was uh, fireproof, fire resistant um, and adding solar to that. So we went with the Tesla solar roof, which is glass um, tiles. We have version two, so it's not the current version that they're installing on a customer home today. But our system, uh, we installed active solar panels around the whole roof. And so it puts out, or the rating is 10.6 kilowatts. So the way to think about that is for every solid hour of sunlight you're getting in ideal conditions with no obstructions from clouds, um, you'll get 10.6 kilowatts of production per hour. So 10.6 kilowatt hours per hour of um, good sun. So we get a bit less than that because we do have it all over the house. So on the north side as well. Um, but that provides more than enough power for our house, uh, our hot tub, two cars, um, all of our heating. We didn't even run natural gas to the house. So I really I'm big on the idea of saying, like, like pick that ideal situation and, and just plan for it and try to build that in. And then you're going to find out what the the issues, the hiccups, the challenges are. Uh, and for us, we, we put that on there and no gas and it, it's been working out fine. I mean, there really haven't been any hiccups. It's different cooking on an induction stove, which is electric. Um, <laughs> But really, that's the only thing that that's that's different. I mean, some people are have this this connection to to cooking on gas and burning things. But once I looked at the health benefits of not burning things and standing there over a combustion flame, it just made sense that uh, electric was a way to go, whether it was perfect or whether we had to try different stoves later on or not. And um, there really wasn't any any of that. So, yeah, yeah. Our, our roof provides more than enough power. Uh, and we've got two power walls and it powers both our cars and, uh, and our house. I was going to say, so what, what are your cars then? I'm assuming electric at, at this point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So this is, this kind of been my, my path kind of all along. It's like, well, let's just try it out and see what, what works, what doesn't. So my wife drives a Mercedes B class. It's a 2014, um, electric, uh, California. It was one of the California kind of compliance cars. So it was actually yeah. a Mercedes B class, which is super popular in Europe. And they kind of sent it to Tesla when when Daimler owned part of Tesla and, and said, hey, let's electrify this thing. And so Tesla built the powertrain, uh, put it in a Mercedes. And at the time, I think it was like a little over 30 grand after a rebate. So it was like the cheapest Mercedes you could buy. And it was we called it the poor man's Tesla, which was just ironic. And I loved it. Um, so that works for, for my wife around town, um, kind of running around town, going to work, you know, getting groceries, get the kids, whatever it is um going hikes with it i mean it's it's a super versatile car it has about 87 miles of range um and then i drive a, a model three and um debating kind of daily whether or not i'm going to upgrade to a model y for a little bit more capacity yeah and was, was that your first electric car what was your first one the first was for our family was the mercedes b-class and then okay. uh, i had a model s um several years back so for two years i had the model s so 2013, hmm. uh, and I bought it used. I actually bought it in um, Ohio, flew out there, picked it up, and kind of said, well, let's just try this the supercharging network out, see if it works. And it worked perfectly. But I mean, at the time, it was kind of like, well, I'm not totally sure this is going to work, but let's let's see. So that's, yeah, that's just me shoot from the hip, and let's see if it works. That early Model S was so good. And those cars are holding up 
so well. I mean, Kyle, you you're lucky. We you you and I drive a lot of the new electric cars on the market, and so we've had both extensive experience using CCS networks and Tesla's charging network. And Tesla's network is is far superior from a reliability and ease of use. The connector is better. And they look nice. Everything is just so much better. And you can see everyone else doing this, like trying to play catch up game. Yeah. Um, and, and I could say it's kind of that way for the whole industry. I mean, I think like what would it look like if Tesla never existed? Would we even have all of these electric cars on the road today? We'd probably have a few. But I don't think anything. What, what's your take on that? No, completely. I mean, um, I, I think getting back to what you're saying about the adapters. I mean, the Tesla adapter goes up to. I think today we're seeing 250 kilowatts in production in the real world. I think people are thinking it's capable of 350, but we don't know for sure. Um, but that adapter is so much better on on every level than the CCS adapter, than the Chatmo adapter, than J1772. It's yeah. It's, so it's so much better. Tesla has done such a great job of really creating that vision early on and building out for it. So I, I think they really did pave the way. It's just unfortunate that um, we couldn't all get on board. The industry couldn't all get on board with that same adapter and say, this this is better, let's use it. It does level one, level two, level three, it goes all the way on up, um, but it, it has a brand associated with it. So unfortunately we can't. So I think they did a great job of, of really casting that vision and, and pulling the automotive industry or maybe pushing the automotive industry into electrification. Um, and I think we've we've clearly crossed that uh, tipping point, um, as Malcolm Gladwell would say, where we're, we're all in on EVs. I think the industry realizes, admits, and is, is starting to cast their own visions. Like we're seeing Ford get bullish about electrification and, and separating their businesses and, and really trying to, to create that. But I mean, Tesla led the way. Tesla, I don't know if it's a pull or a push, but I think, I think pulling, I think like they led, so they're pulling everybody ahead, but pushing, I like that gladiator image of like, dude, we're going, let's go electric. So I feel like it was Tesla and, and we're going to continue to see that because they just continue to, to dominate in so many ways. And it's not that I'm a Tesla fan. It's really not. I'm an electric, electric vehicle fan. I'm a, I'm a technology fan. I'm a sustainability fan, maybe at the core. And, and Tesla has just embodied that better than everybody else i feel like we're still getting some some kind of double talk from some of the other companies so i mean we definitely still our fair share of lip service i mean we go around uh and, and meet a lot of the executives and they're like okay we're gonna make evs great well like do you even sell one today gm yeah and so it's like <laughs> you know we went Jordan, where were we? We were at the Los Angeles Auto Show this year, right? And GM's like, we're going to be all electric in whatever year it is going to be. We go to the Chevy booth. They don't even have a Bolt because, oh, you can't actually pull them inside. And they had not right. even a hybrid. And they had their, their Corvettes, which are cool. I love that stuff. And like their commercial work trucks off in the back. But that was literally it. Meanwhile, you have Tesla and Rivian and Lucid being like, we don't even need to be there. We're doing our own thing. And guess what? They're getting 90% of the attention and it's totally disruptive right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're seeing people talking about like EV incentives and all of that. And I think that's, it's interesting, but like, if you look at the backlogs for any competitive electric vehicle, the backlog is so significant. It's like Rivian is several years. We don't really even know what Rivian's is, but it's it's several years out just looking at their production and based on the, the orders they're talking with the R1T alone. Uh, Tesla, obviously, they've got several months to, to several years. Maybe uh, I think our Model X is due in January, so it was over 12-month lead time on that. Um, but there's just such long backlogs and such high demand for these vehicles that are competitive, that are at a competitive price point. I don't think we need the incentives today, but... Um, I think a lot of it is due to just like we were saying, it's the lack of, of availability of, of models that are competitive. Like the reason we're looking at the Model X is because there aren't really any other seven seater electric vehicles. The R1S from Rivian is about the only other one that, that could be there. And my wife doesn't like the look of it. So I was like, do you want this one or this one? It's like, we, we just need more options at this point. And it would be super exciting to see like a Chevy say, we're not even going to bring combustion vehicles to the auto show. And that sounds crazy, but, I mean, maybe that's what they need to stay alive. I don't know. And I don't think they see it as a life or death situation at this point, but I do. Yeah. I feel like I think they might there are certain, definitely certain people within these large companies that do. And I think Ford is doing the best job at showcasing this. And honestly, Volkswagen as well, where they're like, look, we are all in. Um, 
I guess, you know, (laughs) to me, it's mind blowing. We are so lucky to be able from our side, be able to cover this entire transition to electric because, you know, I, you know, as much as I'm an EV nerd, I love the cars. I'm really excited about them. I also love combustion stuff from an enthusiast standpoint. I don't like that they emit things out the back. So I would never one, you know, sort of around town every day. I think inner city emissions is a huge problem. Um, and it really drives me nuts when I smell a diesel coal rolling. But in my eyes, like in the automotive industry, we have the best of combustion stuff. And the best of electric things, wild, weird things, a Hummer EV that can go zero to 60 in three seconds, weighs 9,000 pounds, it's insane. Uh, and it's super, super exciting. So, you know, maybe we shouldn't stick on cars because I really want to talk about energy storage a little bit more. But if you had the option to buy any electric car for getting wait times or anything like that, what would be your daily driver today? Oof. Uh, I think I think right now, I mean, I, I'm really attached to this idea of having the Cybertruck as my primary vehicle. I don't know if that qualifies because it's not actually available yet. But if I were to look at all of the ones that are you can order that you can put in a reservation for, maybe I would draw that line. That's the one that really has me super excited. And it's not, I've never owned a truck. So I'm a little bit of an odd case here. I don't even live in a mountainous area. We live in an urban area. But what it's gotten me thinking about is like, I initially put in a reservation uh, to really get it and to be able to show truck people, maybe there are different species in my brain, I don't know, but to show truck people like, this thing is competitive, this thing is fast, this thing is powerful, this thing can tow like crazy. I mean, I just watched the TFL uh, Rivian video where they're, to- they're going up the, the Rockies there with the, the electric truck and it's got so much torque, it's towing like crazy. And, and that's the, the, what it has me excited about it because trucks do roll coal, they are known for being super, um, I don't know. It's, it's almost cool to be loud, dirty and inefficient, but have tons of power. And so like, I kind of like wiping all that other stuff off the table and saying like, it's okay. You can have tons of power. You can be modern. You can be quiet and, and still do everything that you wanted to do. And so I think the Cybertruck with 500 miles of range in the top configuration to me, it could check all those boxes. Again, it's not a Tesla thing. I, I thought it was really ugly when it first came out, the Cybertruck. Uh, but it's really the specs and the capability that attracted me to it. So I think that would yeah. probably be my top top choice. Yeah, and we're in an interesting age where um, I think with the electrification aspect, it's bringing people who are tied and committed to electrification and just the environment to opening their eyes to a different class of vehicle they would have never considered before. Um, like advent, like yeah, for trucks and like that was me. Like I've never had an interest in a truck. And then I saw the Rivian and I was like, oh, maybe I am a truck person. And then the Cybertruck came out and it was like so polarizing and I loved it. I actually had some friends over for the watch party for the unveiling and we all drew on sticky notes what we thought it would look like. And as a joke, I drew like a triangle thing and it ended up looking exactly like it. And I was like, that's hilarious. Um, So I I can't wait to see them on the road. I would. And yeah, it's it's the, the aspect of, oh, I could use a truck. Some people haven't bought trucks because they're tied to the environment and they're like, I cannot possibly swallow 15 miles to the gallon. The Ford Maverick me and Kyle tested recently adjust that a bit because it's now suddenly a 40-ish miles per gallon city commuter that has a truck bed. So it does open a new avenue with that. But I'm excited to see more Rivians and eventually the Cybertruck. I know it's coming, maybe, I, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it, it's interesting to see all of the advents of that. And um, so you have, I know Kyle wanted to talk about some power storage solutions. And so you have two power walls. Um, and then how do you feel about, I guess the, the idea of everyone's vehicle kind of accepting like a power to load type situation where the vehicles essentially become a power wall in a way as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is an area where I feel like there's a massive amount of opportunity Um I would probably rewind before the battery and I would start with the, the charging. This is something Kyle and I talked about. I think there was a pilot in Colorado with, uh, it was juice box at the time. I think Anel probably picked it up. Uh, but in Colorado, they were working with uh, demand charges for EV charging. So, or demand management, demand response. Um, and so what that is, is basically you've got your charger and it's pulling six kilowatts. Uh, the grid could t- come and say, or the grid could have an issue. And the utility would come to you and say digitally and obviously seamlessly, they're not going to actually come to you, but 
they could come to you and say, hey, we're going to throttle you down to, to zero to one kilowatt because we've got a high demand, you know, because of AC running during the day or whatever. And so you can effectively use demand response for those high usage items like EV chargers, like air conditioners um, to, to throttle the usage down and, and have that same effect where you're, you're mitigating the uh, higher usage on the grid. So I think that's the first step that I would take. I think that's the most compelling. It's just like with solar, you always want to focus on reducing your consumption before you try to offset um, all of the consumption that you have with with something cleaner or um, more efficient. Uh, and then from there, I think the the vehicle to grid aspect is exciting. Um, I think there's opportunity there. I just don't know what it looks like. I don't know if if grid operators are looking to use like we'll we'll talk about the Ford F one fifty Lightning because they've uh, they've already been vocal about having that capability and being able to feed back to the house at least. Um, but I think if you take that car and you connect it to the grid. Would, would the local utility come and say, we're going to pull from your battery for high use grid events. You can pull from your battery when the grid goes down. I feel like those two are really easy um, as long as the grid events are infrequent. I think it's when you get to the higher frequency of grid events um, where people aren't going to want to use their car batteries. They're not going to want to cycle their car. They're not going to want to basically depreciate their vehicle and the battery faster um, to offset grid issues. Because people fundamentally just don't care about the grid. They don't want to think about it. Um, and unless there's a financial incentive to to do that, um, I, I don't see that happening. So I feel like there's an opportunity there for for kind of disasters. Like if the power plant suddenly goes down and it happens maybe once a year or less, uh, I think people would be up for it if there was a financial incentive or if it just kept their power on. Um, but beyond that, people are fairly selfish. And so I think unless there's a real I don't know, real driving incentive, whether it's financial or, or just keeping your own lights on, I think people wouldn't be up for it. So I think that's the, the catch is for me, I don't see the motivating factor for the average homeowner to care about it. And until that happens, um, I don't see mass adoption happening because people aren't going to be asking dealers for it if they're not asking dealers or I guess in the post-dealer world, if they're not asking companies for it, they're not going to be willing to pay more for a vehicle or charger that has it. So um, I think there's an opportunity. I just don't know what that path to market looks like for it. One of the situations we're talking about here is our office is at uh, Colorado State University's powerhouse. And what this is, is basically a, a subset of the main campus where uh, very much forward on future thinking, decarbonization, uh, you know, alternative energy sources. And so really interesting, these types of conversations happen all the time in, in this building. And uh, Colorado State is building basically a secondary version of this, a much improved version uh, with a, a you know, beautiful campus right across the street. And one of the topics that I've been pushing for and trying to explore and something I'm going to increasingly uh, get more involved in is how do we charge all of the cars in that parking lot? And, you know, we already have a very high percentage of electric vehicle drivers in this building because of what it is. So we already have, you know, probably 20 EVs in the parking lot as is, and this is only going to grow over time. And to me, it's like, okay, the, the school wants to do research. There's, you know, tons of money being pumped in this place, lots of government incentives. What does it look like to create the future of charging for workplace daytime charging? And to me, it is a micro DC grid type situation where everything has bi-directional CCS connections. You know, we try and get as many cars with this functionality. Volkswagen Group vehicles will have it starting this year and more to come. And then we basically say, what time do you leave work? I leave at, you know, 6 p.m. and I need my car at 70% state of charge. Whatever else happens in the middle, do whatever you want. And, but to your point, Kyle, how do you convince people to say, use my battery pack because cycling it is going to degrade it. We don't know exactly how much it doesn't seem like very much, but there is, it's not going to make it any better. How do you in incentivize people to use a situation? And is that the way you would approach that problem? How would you do that? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's a natural connection there with the charging, the cost to charge. So if you could say, Hey, we'll give you a free charge if we can use your battery that could be an offset uh, because people do it's surprising like we've got a lot of level two chargers around here like at whole foods they've got volta chargers uh, we've got a lot of earlier chargers that were were subsidized by the government or the county uh, different levels of government uh, so there's free charging around and it's it's funny to see 
some of these chargers, some of these uh, drivers go around and try to get free charging. And it's like, you're saving, uh, I don't know, a dollar an hour in terms of like 6.6 .6 kilowatts times whatever the electricity rate is. So you're not saving a ton of money, but people get so greedy about free. And so I think there could be a tie to that where you say, plug into the free charger. Uh, the offset is we use your battery. We're not going to advertise to you. You know, there's no no other cost, but we will lean on your battery up to a certain limitation. So I think that could be an option for that. Um, but then there's the cost aspect too, right? If you're putting a, a bi-directional DC vehicle to grid capable charger in at every station, um, that could get significant if we don't plan it right. And so I think we need to rethink how we do chargers. We need to rethink the incentive model. Uh, I think free charging could be a path to that. Um, but what we're not talking about here is that there's an obvious gap in that 75% of the EVs sold in the US are Teslas and Tesla just doesn't, isn't embracing that. They're they're just saying, no, they're not capable of, of doing V to G on the vehicle side, you on the charger side. About that? There's not one other Tesla here other than ours, right, Jordan? I don't <laughs> think there is. It's, it's literally every Nissan Leaf on the planet because they're all professors. That's all they drive. It's the only optional vehicle of choice if you're a professor, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> Either a second gen Prius or a Leaf. Those are your oh, options. That's great. Uh, so the, the Leaf is the new Prius. The Leaf is, in this town, Leafs are on every corner. They're everywhere. And they're bi-directional capable with Chatamo. And so right. my thought is, are you familiar with ChemPower chargers? I've heard of them, but I'm not familiar with them. Yeah, they basically, what they do is it's a very similar situation to like a version three supercharger where you have one centralized power source and then dispensers scattered around. And I, I don't know how many, I think they can do like 10 or 20 per dispenser. And, you know, rather than doing an individualized DC bi-directional charger, you know, doing all the work at every single point, if you can have, you know, put a lot of money into one centralized source and then just run cables everywhere, you know, because copper is expensive, but this building is going to be there for the next 50, 100 years. So it does, it's not that big of a deal to run cabling. Um, then that could be a solution, but it doesn't exist right now. You can't just go and buy this off the shelf. Yeah, so that would be demand response. Or are they managing it actually like being able to pull it from the vehicles as well? Like individual yeah, hopefully chat a little bit of both because I think it would be cool to tie in some battery storage as well to smooth out the frequency of the grid and have the cars act as another battery. And then really maybe if it's rather than free charging, maybe we could even go farther because our town is actually our own utility. So mm -hmm. we have really good uh, connections with them. Perhaps we could even go as far as to say you get a charging credit if you if we have to take energy from your car over back, so um, these are all the, the things that you know will go into this, and I really hope um, the school will go for an experimental, forward-thinking approach because honestly, if if programs like this at at universities where there's money to be spent on engineering and it's not always ROI based. Um, this is where it can set the future for what the parking lot of the future looks like. And to me, that's the most exciting thing because if we can have more lower power chargers in more places that reduces the need for high power DC charging everywhere, which really stresses the grid, uh, you know, when we're middle of the day, putting 300 kilowatts into a car. So I'm really pumped about this project. Yeah, no, I, I love that idea. I think the way it ties in with the, the storage at the charging location as well is, is, important because then it offers additional flexibility beyond just whatever vehicles are connected because you might have no vehicles connected and it's a Saturday, but without that storage uh, or with that storage, you can actually use the station uh, to, to absorb and to get back to the grid and to play in that space as well. Um, I wonder if it I would be cheaper to have like 10 used Nissan Leafs plugged in all the time instead of having battery storage. Yeah, yeah, I think there are a lot of neat scenarios like that. And that's that's why it's I think people have a hard time wrapping their minds around it is because it is it's almost I wouldn't say too complex. I think there are too many options. So it's like you've got this tree of of options and it branches out like do I install storage? Do I connect EVs? Do I connect EVs to the house? Is it just local? How is my utility? Uh, is solar a, a factor in this? Because that's another thing when you've got tons of of let's call it workplace charging or or school charging where you've got people plugged in from eight to five. I think that's really cool because you can also say, hey, we've got a bunch of solar. We need everybody charging at peak. And so then you start talking about like, well, what is the charging curve on this vehicle and how much can it take or how much can we push? Can we play with charging curves? And I think there's a lot of really 
interesting intersections in that space. And we really need the right company. And this is why I'm so frustrated about, another reason I'm frustrated about Tesla in this space is because they are the intersection of all of those technologies. They play in solar storage, cars, charging, fast charging. And like, why aren't they active in this space? And it feels like I'm missing something or they know something I don't, but I refuse to accept that. It's like, there's an opportunity here. Let's, let's keep digging. Um, at least tell us why it won't work. At least show us some examples of, of what you did and, you know, backs up your well, It's your like Tesla, has the, they have the easiest approach, right? They have all of their cars connected. So let's say you have 50 cars right now navigating to Kettleman City, California supercharger. You would think Tesla, and I don't think they do this right now. You could say, oh my God, we have all these cars coming. Let me just juice up battery packs to full as much as possible at that site. Let me maybe ramp down the total system site power output because it's three o'clock in the afternoon and electricity is going to have, you know, $10 per kilowatt hour demand charge, whatever it is. And exactly. I don't think they're doing this on their larger scale solutions, let alone in the home. You know, I have a power not installed but sitting in my garage. And what I really want to do is actually put in a trailer because I don't own a house. It's the worst time to buy a house. So I'm just kind of like keeping it there. Um, I thought it'd be fun to use it for some projects here at the school, but it's still pretty small scale. So it's not that big of a deal. Um, I don't know what to do with the damn thing. How cool would it be if I could just plug it into the wall and just have it as an intermediary connection between my house and the car? Something like this. You know, I, my car, I drive four miles a day. I don't need 12 kilowatt home charging. Just give me more options. And they don't seem to do this. Now, you have it all installed. If you go to your app, you can see power coming from the grid, power coming from your house, what you're consuming. But what happens when you plug in your car? Can the power walls deliver that much energy to your vehicle? Or is it more efficient just to pull from the grid and bypass the storage inefficiencies? Yeah, so I think the uh, the system can... So each power wall, I think, can put out five kilowatts. Um, it might peak above that, but that, that covers the majority of a 6.6 .6 kilowatt car charger. So if you plug in both, you're pulling them at full. Um, so for instance, if you take like the traditional workday where uh, we both go to work, um, use our cars, come home, uh, the sun's going down, we're getting home, plugging in our cars. Uh, so our power walls will be fully charged. We plug in. The system defaults to solar, so it's going to route the solar to your home's usage first. That's the most efficient because you're not going through the inverter to get into the power wall and then back out again, and then another one to get into the car. So initially, it'll default to solar. Um, and then depending on your settings for your power wall, um, whether you're trying to maximize self-consumption or you know play the peak shaving game and try to save some money, um, it, it'll pull from the power walls or the grid. Uh, but the power walls can support I would say both our cars charging at that 6.6 .6 kilowatt rate, um, depending on what the charging curves are. If we both plug them in and they're both empty, it would theoretically exceed that. But for the most part, it can handle that that load. Um, it just can't handle the capacity because the power walls are 13 and a half kilowatt hours each. And obviously our car batteries, even on my wife's car, is, is far bigger than that. So that's where you get into some, some challenges. If you do have a long drive um, and you do fully deplete the battery, then you are going to flip over and start pulling from the grid. But um, yeah, I think there's, there is a lot of opportunity getting back to what you're saying about uh, Tesla's ability to kind of look and say, hey, we're routing 40 cars to, to Kettleman City or whatever charger. Let's plan ahead for that or let's reroute some people um, and move them around. I think there's a massive opportunity for that. And to me, that's not so much, it, it is a Tesla opportunity because that's all we see today. But it's, it's so much broader than that because Tesla will not ever be, uh, let's say, more, more than 90% or more than 10% of the uh, the vehicles on the road. So let's say they max 10%. Uh, we still have 90% of the cars that we need to create another standard for. We need to create the same opportunity for. We need to create the same. We need to tap into this and, and really maximize this opportunity. Um, and so it really, to me, it speaks to a, a broader need for for vehicle intelligence, vehicle connections beyond the manufacturer level. Uh, we need charging stations to have that same capability. We need grid players to be in there and, and energy storage is a part of it. So it's it's complicated, but if you look at Tesla as kind of the future use case for it, it does paint a really nice picture for like what that opportunity looks like and how we should be, how we could be taking advantage of all the connectivity in these these electric vehicles, these connected vehicles to uh, to really play smarter with electricity and storage and and how we're using it. So, 
What do you yeah. think about, um, you know, we, we've recently gotten into e-bikes as sort of a reduction of traffic. You know, I basically when it's been, it was three degrees when I left my house this morning. So I'm not riding an e-bike when it's three degrees Fahrenheit outside, but when it's warm, I have this beautiful system that goes from my house to the, you know, the, the powerhouse here. And to me, that is just so much better than driving a car. I'm having a fun experience. I'm, you know, essentially using less energy in total to move myself to where I need to go. But I think most people don't really care about that so much. But do you think there should be regulation on what types of vehicles we can drive in city centers? We've seen in Germany already, you needed like a Euro 6 compliant vehicle, which is like super new emission stuff. And soon it will be electric only in city centers. Um, we've never seen anything like that in the US. Would that ever work? Yeah, so I think, I think, I mean, I'm a huge fan of e-bikes. I basically spent the, the two years of COVID, maybe the first year and a half of COVID, just focusing on e-bikes because I am such a huge fan of e-bikes. I think it's an amazing form factor and there's so much potential there. Um, I love, so I'm gonna flip to Europe first because I think it's easier to solve there. I think Europe, if you look at like historically, Europe evolved when we didn't have vehicles. We didn't really even have horse-drawn carriages and all of that, so it was very, walking centric it was very walking focused so the cities the design the evolution of those cities and those spaces was focused around where we could get with our feet where we can get with maybe a horse um and it wasn't it wasn't focused on on freeways and cars and and massive commute distances and so in europe it, it's a much easier fit to say let's put transit in let's add e-bikes let's block off city centers to, to vehicle traffic they weren't designed for vehicles like you go to almost any major city in Europe. And the, the center of those cities wasn't designed for vehicles. We, we force fit it, we, we carved out spaces, we took spaces away and we made it fit. And now they're starting to re, re, reclaim that for uh, pedestrians and, and bikes. So I think Europe, the cities are much better fit uh, for that type of an evolution, that type of a transformation. Um, I'm still extremely passionate about e-bikes and just this personal electric mobility, whether it's a one wheel a unicycle or whatever it is, a skateboard um, that you're using. But I think we have a bigger challenge here in the U.S. Uh, because our cities were built around cars. We we had cars. We built the cities around that. We didn't think about transit and we didn't think about people, really. And so I think in, in the U.S., what I've found is that we need to really focus on infrastructure and we need to put that infrastructure in place, like the bike path you were talking about. Not everybody has that. I mean, that's that's amazing. And people that have that, we should be definitely saying, let's get you on an e-bike, let's advertise this, let's promote this, and let's let's make this a part of your life because it's really a lot easier than people think. Uh, but for instance, me, I, I, in my kind of last four years when I've been riding e-bikes intensely, um, I've been clipped by a car. I've had cars speed by me with maybe three inches of clearance at like 80 miles an hour. So almost died multiple times. And it's just, it's that kind of thing where I'm a huge advocate for it, but infrastructure has to come first in, in so many situations before we can say, let's do this. Because I'm not gonna say, go gamble with your life. I would say, go try an e-bike, see how it fits into your life recreationally, and then start dreaming beyond that to how you can use it as transit or as a replacement for a car. But we need to know as city planners, as policymakers, as influencers, that infrastructure in the US is far more important than in some other areas. So you can't just take one solution and blanket it out across. Um, it's not always safe to, to just say, get on an e-bike and ride. You might be able to ride a bike, you might be able to ride an e-bike, but can you ride it to work safely? And that's that's where I think where we need to start really drilling in. And it has to be driven by the local level. And that's where advocacy can come into play. But um, yeah, it, it's not a blanket solution and it's not a, an easy band-aid that we can just slap on there in my it mind. It makes sense because um, even with, I would say, we have one of the most bike-friendly towns I've ever been to living here, which we're so lucky, which is why I've kind of gotten into it. And then we reached out to all these e-bike makers. We're like, hey, send us your stuff. And now we have like 50 e-bikes around here. I don't <laughs> even know what to do with them. It's snowing. We can't review them. I'm like, sorry, we'll get videos out when it warms up. Um but, but we already are starting to see some issues like Jordan, you and I went, so Jordan took the aerial rider 52 volt and yeah. I took, what was I, I think a rad plus 
uh, rad runner plus with the step through. Yeah, and yeah. we went out for a blast on some of our trails here and the speed limit's 15, but you really don't need to pedal if you don't want to. Uh, and there's no one checking your speed. So like you can like rip down these trails and I could already see some safety issues where you can have people on e-bikes and like this lady with a dog can run out in front of you. And like, it's almost as if we need walking, biking, e-biking, and, car. <laughs> and then public transport, of course. So it's like... Uh, we, we have almost the perfect solution, and even then there's there's issues with it. Yeah, safety is so often overlooked. And Kyle, I think <clears throat> there's definitely video potential in that. We've already talked about discussing vehicle charging station safety, and there's also an entire safety aspect around e-bikes, how they're operated, how they're used. Um, and it's you know it is amazing how a lot of them arrive in pieces and then people assemble them and, you know, hopefully they assemble them correctly and then they go rip it at 25 miles an hour. And it's like, well, hopefully, cause it's not like it comes assembled and it's usually easy assembly, but it's, it is amazing how many things can go wrong. Well, we've installed forks backwards by accident. Yeah. I, I, I mean, when we were reviewing, I don't know which one it was, but getting back and I was like, this doesn't feel right. And, oh, it was, it was the X class, and I was like, "Oh, I, you know, I tightened everything down, but then we like did some writing and break-in period, and then you're supposed to retorque things, and we didn't. And now I will at every every time we do a first ride review. Um, but there's so much. Yeah, because you hit the brakes and you went whoa. Yeah, <laughs> the whole handlebar gave way. Yeah, yeah there's, there's so much to discuss with safety and having lived in such a variety of towns you know fort collins super bike friendly uh when i lived in boulder amazingly bike friendly when i lived in dallas fort worth you cannot even own a bike unless you're in within your neighborhood that, that you can't leave your neighborhood it's just, huh. it won't work um <laughs> and even public transit and everything there's so many variables and with the u.s there's a the u.s is huge and it's diverse. So we have so many different kinds of towns and cities. I mean, in studying architecture, you'll learn that Boston was an organic city. So just like Europe, it just grew organically based around what made sense in terms of walking and horses and carriages and stuff like that. And there's cities like Chicago, which was kind of an organic city. And then the Chicago fire happened and they had a choice. It was a, do we go organic or do we do planned? And they went planned. And so the whole city became a grid after that. And there's the grid is like optimized for cars, but then getting around Chicago, it's actually decent public transport, but it's, you know, you get well, to the size public of public transport with bullet holes in your back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you got, yeah. If you're riding an e-bike around Chicago, like, Hey, it's cold. And you got to watch out for like an old Chevy Malibu just running into you somewhere. Like it's, it's scary sometimes. And, you know, I've never been to Europe. I'm looking forward to hopefully going soon. Um, because I've learned so much about their architecture and their roads and even their cars are generally smaller. Like if you see an F-250 in <laughs> Europe, you're like, oh my gosh, what, how is this guy getting around? Jordan, if you see an F-150 in Europe, you're like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. It's it's an interesting problem and there's a solution in there somewhere, but it's not. there's just no way to jump to the solution. It's gradual and having these conversations this is why we do this podcast having conversations with experts in the field and everyone we have on is their own unique place to fill and especially people in kind of the journalist area where we are producing content that tons of people are seeing or reading or listening to and it's just fueling that conversation which allows for actual change right i mean people don't know what they want until they either experience it or they catch, catch that vision. They catch that passion from somebody else that, that has experienced it or that has dreamed it or that has seen the building blocks and kind of dreamed about and envisioned that next step. And so for me, yeah, like when I went to Europe the first time, I mean, it was, it was kind of transformative. It was like, wow, like you fly into the airport and you can just get on a train and go to a different city. You can, you can go anywhere in the city. Like it, it to me, I was like, that's what I want. Like, I don't, I don't want to fly into an airport and then like have to wonder about like, do I take a taxi? Do I take a, a how do I get to where I want to go? Um, like for me here in California, there's no real easy way for me to take transit to the airport. Like it, it's a two hour. If I drive, it's maybe an hour, hour and a half, um, depending on traffic, of course, in LA. Um, but transit should take around that same amount of time. And yet it takes far longer. And so I think 
it's it's really when people experience that or hear about it uh, that those ideas can really catch fire. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I think there is a ton of opportunity there. And uh, for me, the city I want to live in is is connected. It's transit. It's pedestrian focused. Uh, E-bikes should play a part of that. And I, I think getting back to what you're saying, Kyle, about safety. I mean, safety is is super critical with e-bikes. I mean, not only because you're moving at a faster speed, but because you can accidentally torque it on some of them with the throttle and, and launch yourself into a car. I've, I've had friends do that. It's not fun. Um, and so there is a whole different level of, of safety and awareness that we need to, to emphasize with e-bikes. Um, at a minimum, people should be wearing a helmet, um, but then beyond that to traffic as well. I mean, is it mixed in with pedestrians? I agree. I don't, I don't think that's a natural fit. If you're going 20 miles an hour, or 28 miles an hour on a class three e-bike, uh, you probably shouldn't be zooming by somebody with a dog that could just jump out in front of you or a kid that they're holding by the hand. My kids, you know, they just wander off. Like it's, you do your best, but it's not something you can predict and, and plan for on an e-bike when you're moving at 28 miles an hour uh, right next to them. So I think safety definitely needs to be a consideration. And to me, that just boils down to infrastructure and standards and, and planning. Um, all areas that I'm not an expert in, but I think I see that need. I see that uh, happening in Europe, and um, that's what I want for for my city, for my state, for my my country. I mean, that's that's the future I want to live in. I don't know about you guys. Hundred percent. We need to do a little more work with our local municipalities and understand how they are approaching our systems in our town. The nice thing is we have a very progressive town. Uh, in terms of transportation, some good, some bad. They put speed cameras everywhere that I want to shoot out because I think that's just ridiculous. It doesn't make anyone slow down. It's just collecting money. And then on the other hand, they put in these beautiful walkways and pathways that really improve our lives. And so I think there's a lot of uh, influence we can have here. You know, we're still new to the town, but time to get a little bit more immersed. And this is an area we want to cover through Out of Spec Scoots, our new e-bike channel. And uh, we'll really be ramping it up when it gets warmer. Jordan's going to be joining us in Europe for a month in July. So perhaps we can do some e-bike stuff over there, which will be kind of fun and uh, do like a Munich versus Denver uh, ease of transportation type situation, which could be kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is, uh, you know, we've posed a lot of questions. We don't have all the answers, but these are the things at least that are on my mind. I appreciate having guys like Kyle on the podcast because, you know, th th there's not many of us that are covering this field. There's uh, literally your Kyle field, but there's not many of us that are covering, uh, you know, e-mobility and uh, things from the perspective of efficiency in either uh, energy usage or consumption, but also getting around places, the, the actual movement of efficiency. So uh, there's got to be less than 10 people that are doing this stuff, I think. Yeah, at our particular intersection, I think it is extremely exciting where you can see kind of how many ideas are, are kind of coming together and clashing and meshing in all those different intersections. Um, I mean, we talk about electric vehicles and there's a natural synergy there with autonomous vehicles. But what we don't necessarily think about is that if you have autonomous vehicles and you lower the cost of transportation, you increase traffic and you make it easier and cheaper, people are going to use it more. And so it doesn't decrease traffic. It doesn't directly at least one for one swap it doesn't make congestion better it actually makes it worse and so we need to find better ways to solve these problems and i firmly believe that e-bikes are a part of that and that doesn't even touch on the health aspect of it uh, we live up a huge hill and so until e-bikes came around uh, i wasn't really riding my bike it collected dust the entire time we lived here until the bike burned down in the fire and then uh, kind of coming out of that i moved into the e-bike space and said like this is a fantastic solution for geography for health for uh the, the the pairing with transit you can ride your bike to the bus station put it on a bus or a train take it to your destination and solve that last mile problem with these e-bikes and so i think uh finding those and developing those holistic solutions is extremely exciting and and yeah i mean it's it's uh it gets me excited about the future and i hope it does for others as well because it's uh there's so much potential there yeah it's interesting you know uh, top gear to 
bring something funny into this. They they make fun of the reality that a lot of like car people hate bike people and a lot of bike people hate car people, but it's funny that the advent of electric cars is people are into them because of the electric mindset and the like, you know, environmentally friend, friendly mindset to bring it back to that. And so it's funny that electric car owners are also seemingly into electric bikes or even just bicycles in general. So yeah, but Jordan, when I'm on an electric bike, I hate car drivers. And when I'm in a car, <laughs> I hate bike riders. That's true. Then there's people who just, just <laughs> hate everything. Just angry at everyone. <laughs> yeah. Winston Churchill, right? I'm not a racist. I hate everybody equally. It's like, yes. <laughs> that, there you yeah. go. That's, yeah. That, yeah. So it's there. Yeah, you're right. The, the, the solution is so multifaceted because it is charging infrastructure. It's the, um, where we store the power, how we, like produce the power and then it's the cars it's the e-bikes it's the scooters and um, skateboards and even public transportation and somewhere in there is this utopia we paint in our head and toyota's kind of trying to paint pictures of their toyota city whatever it's called so <laughs> there is some utopia not bring toyota into this conversation <laughs> <laughs> it's not yeah bc4x yay um so it's it's not that it's not going to look like that it's people need to start thinking about how it actually applies to the real life right now. And it's just going to be granular steps. And hopefully we see a lot more steps in the future. We've seen so many just in the past 10 years. It's hard to believe Model S came out to the public 10 years ago and look how far we've progressed since then. So I'm excited to see where it progresses from here, but we really appreciate you coming on, you know, and talking about this with us. And we hope to have a lot of you and others on recursively because this conversation it's not like what we talk about right now is the truth. It is for now, but in a few months, so many things could change. So we're going to keep these conversations going. For sure. No, I appreciate you guys having me on. I mean, this is the stuff that, that makes me want to get out of bed in the morning. This is the stuff I get excited about. <laughs> and I think it's just really seeing these new technologies and starting to, like, we're very fortunate, like you said, Kyle, like we get to play with all these new vehicles, new, new batteries, new bikes, uh, new other forms of crazy modes of transit or technology and um, we are the ones that get to dream first, but really what I would encourage people to do is if they hear about these technologies and they get excited about them, it's like, go try an e-bike, go borrow your neighbors or go down to the local bike store, go, go down to the auto dealership, make sure you do your research and they actually have electric cars, but go drive an electric car, um, and try these things out and start dreaming for yourself and figuring out how they fit into your life. Because like you said, Jordan, I mean, these are custom solutions. Like we're talking from our own position, our own truth, our own vision, but each person in the world is going to have their own vision, their own unique solution that they need. And so I would just encourage people to go out and get your hands on these technologies, try them out for yourselves and figure out how it can fit into your life and how it can make it better because it's, it's exciting. I mean, the future is a cool place and let's build it. As Kyle would say, hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah brother. I'll get behind that. Hell yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I mean, again, we're we're excited to have you on, and you know, I'm excited about e-bikes. Like, I, me and Kyle had never driven one. I mean, we have a video of our actual first time on an <laughs> e-bike, and it's funny because we like already committed to reviewing these things that we've never even experienced. So we're, like, we're starting you... an e-bike channel. Wait, I don't know. <laughs> I've never ridden one. <laughs> sometimes you just have to go for it, and I'm hoping more people do because, like you said, it's adding like a tangible experience puts it in your head that it's possible. And so the more people who drive electric cars, even if they just test drive it, or if you go on vacation, Turo one or rent one and rent a model three, it hurts. Like just experience it, charge it, plug it in. Hey, it actually works just like they said it would. Um, that'll or it doesn't. And here's where it needs improvement. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's always, that's always the hard conversations is someone I talked to who they had their one and possibly only experienced for a while in EV because it didn't work. And now they're never going to touch it again, at least for another five, 10 years. So those are always they're harder. That's everyone they can make. No loss to <laughs> yeah. us. That's yeah. your job, Kyle. You're supposed to go break everything so that the manufacturers fix it ahead Trust of time. Me, we have been doing a lot of that <laughs> recently <laughs> and more to come. Anyway, no, thanks for joining it. the podcast. Appreciate it. And uh, Jordan, you want to end us out here? Yeah. So if you want to find Kyle Field, you can go at Mr. Kyle Field on Twitter. And then Kyle Connor is at it's kyle connor and i am the schmuck with the underscore my name jordan underscore <laughs> shiver it's hard to say but uh yeah we appreciate having you on and we'll see you all in the next one
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.